What up, what up, what up, podcast listeners? We're back. And, oh yeah, you probably guessed it. Another amazing, fantastic, awesome, ballin' episode of the Map Baxter Show with, yep, super creative, you guessed it, your boy, Matt Baxter. I'm hanging out with Ben Christensen. Ben Christensen, number one, a lot of love, uh, Michigan man. Number two, knows a great brewery or two in western part of Michigan uh, that I may have uh, frequented a time or two. Um, but also, Ben is uh, the co-founder at Handshake. And for those of you uh, who have been living under a rock uh, for the last decade, um, probably may not have heard of it, but everybody else in the world has because Handshake has absolutely disrupted the way students get jobs, apply for jobs, market themselves where companies can hire talent coming out of colleges and just the impact that they're having. They've just closed a massive funding round. They are doing some amazing, amazing, amazing things. So I just got to give a lot of love uh, to Ben. Ben is a fantastic guy. He's a great leader. He's thoughtful. He's intelligent. And they are just doing some amazing, amazing disruptions. So much love to Ben. I want to give basically everybody a shout to say, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Fantastic stuff. And Ben is just a great man. Ben, thanks so much for being a guest on this podcast. This is going to be a blast. Yeah, really excited to be here. Really excited to chat with you. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, I think the original introduction, got to give a little shout out love from William Tincup. And I think his exact words were two Michigan guys uh, being introduced by a Texan. So there's something ironic going on there. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's weird how all those connections end up kind of working their way back into each other in the end. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So, so Ben, you know, if you'd be willing, just give me the background. I'd love the life story. And I know we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about and kind of the, the hiring space and a ton of different stuff. But, you know, give me the lowdown in your background. Yeah, for sure. So I, um, as you referenced, I grew up in Michigan, grew up in the Lower Peninsula, went to school in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, kind of middle of nowhere, um, 300 inches of snow, half the flights in get canceled or delayed, a school called Michigan Tech. Uh, and I, that's kind of the was basically my plan ever since I was in middle school. I always wanted to go to that school. That's what I wanted to do. Um, Didn't really ever think about going anywhere else really outside of that. Um, And uh, as I went through college, went through school, uh, I kind of really realized that there's a lot of, a lot of the students, a lot of the friends that I knew kind of also had kind of a similar sort of single minded, like, okay, cool. This is the thing I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to go. Right. If you were a mechanical engineer, for instance, at Michigan tech, you went to Ford. If you were in computer science, you went to Epic, uh, which is over in Wisconsin. Right. And you didn't see, I just didn't see a lot of branching out of, uh, from friends and other things like that. And you didn't see people going to startups. You didn't see people going to finance companies. Uh, I didn't know what investment banking was even as a concept, for instance. Um, and, and myself, along with my two other co-founders, we started the company called Handshake, and it really kind of came out of just really noticing this. And then uh, as we started to really dig into how do we help other students that are, you know, at this remote school that maybe aren't seeing all of these other opportunities just going down these core beaten paths, uh, we really realized it's a lot bigger of a problem than that. It's not just being a remote place that's not getting a lot of employers coming out to you when you stack in gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, being a first-gen student in college, so many other different things that just kind of really has has limited so many people and really limited access to opportunity for so many different folks. So um, we kind of went from that. That's what really led into us starting this business. It's also really connected into a lot of the stuff that I love to do outside of work too. And uh, one of the things that's, I think, continued to really drive me. I love it. So, so, you know, being from Michigan myself, I got to probe a couple of Michigan questions. What, lo- what lower peninsula town did you grow up in? A uh, town called Howell, um, kind of in between like Ann Arbor, Lansing, Detroit, kind of if you made a triangle out of those. I have uh, been a 
I think I bought a couple, you know, polo shirts and uh, Nike shoes at the Howell yeah. uh, Tangler outfit, or uh, you yeah. know that that uh, that mall out there. So of course, yes, yes. Um, so it's funny. I had a, I had a good friend uh, who. So I grew up just south of Ann Arbor in Saline, and was looking at either Alabama or Michigan Tech, and it was literally the same exact distance from. Ann Arbor to go to Michigan Tech opposed to go to Alabama. People don't realize how far it is up there. (laughs) A lot of people end up, we would, we would end up happening every single year was a recruiter would call the school and be like, Hey, we can't find the school. We can't find the career fair. Uh, And it turned out they went to Houghton Lake, which is a city in the middle of the lower peninsula, Michigan. And it's like, Oh no, you need to get on the road. And it's going to be another six hour drive before you get here. (laughs) That's a GPS. You really don't want to mess that one up. So uh, the the drive to Michigan Tech uh, originally, whether it was middle school, high school, you know, you're focused on that. Was that because it was a single track? Like if you you if you got there, you succeeded there, you could get this. Or what was sort of the original drive for that? So I had a family member that went to Michigan Tech. Uh, and so that's how I initially learned of it. And then they had this summer program that they set up. And so I got to go to this, I got to take apart a computer, rebuild it, learn how everything worked. And I was kind of just hooked from there. Uh, and that's kind of what just made me never think about any other option. I think I also didn't really like have a lot of peers that were like, Hey, I'm going to go try to go to some like fancy Ivy league or anything else like that. And so that was just about that. I mean, I think it was a great school for me, but yeah, ever since I did that summer program and got to just really dig in and get my hands dirty on something, I never looked anywhere else. So we're going to get into this, but one, one more Michigan tech kind of related question. Were you, uh, were, you know, did you ski? Did you hike? Did you fish? What was the outdoor life that you liked doing out there? So prior to Michigan Tech, I every once in a while would go skiing with my dad at a place called Mount Brighton, which was a converted trash hill. Uh, so it was no no real sort of skiing. And far too far was- too uh, familiar with that location, of yeah. course. <laughs> yep, and it's fun, but it is not like it is not skiing like anyone that is from anywhere with mountains would ever ever recognize. Uh, and so Michigan Tech though had its own hill. It was also a pretty small one. I got a lot more into snowboarding around that time, uh, and then otherwise the thing that was amazing about Michigan Tech was there's just so much beautiful nature out there. You've got amazing hiking, there's waterfalls you can explore. And so that was the big activity, right? It was when it wasn't deep winter, go hiking and exploring. And when it was winter, you'd go skiing or you'd hang out inside with your friends. And that was kind of the, the gamut of stuff. It's one of those, like, I think it's starting to become a little bit more discovered, but like, if you want to go see one of the most beautiful places in the world without a lot of people around, just, you know, truly enjoy nature, you know, Upper Peninsula is like still one of the most special places. Absolutely. I love it. So, all right. Um, when, so when during your sort of uh, tenure at Michigan Tech, did you first sort of really start chewing on this idea of what obviously Handshake has evolved into be today? When was sort of the, I guess, adolescent thought that kind of kept you kept rolling with? Yeah, I would say, so my end of my sophomore year, I got an internship at Target um, and did that. My One of my co-founders ended up hustling his way into this remote internship for a small startup. Uh, and from there, kind of as we like caught back up and compared notes, we met other folks during these that were actually doing all working for all, all sorts of companies we'd never considered, right? Like someone was working for Google. We didn't know anyone from Michigan Tech that had ever worked for Google, right? So it's like, whoa, you you did that? And people talking about all these different interesting startups and everything else. And so that really kind of lit a bit of a um, kind of spark for us, right? And 
uh, we started really digging into it more. My co-founder, our CEO, ended up getting an internship at Palantir, came after that, came back, introduced a bunch of our friends to a bunch of startups that he had met while he was out there. And that next year, 15 different people that we knew ended up getting startup jobs, which like did not happen prior to that. And so seeing how much just that simple introduction on locked doors was really, I think, a moment for us where we're like, wow, this doesn't have to be the way it is. Like, it's actually not that complicated. It's just if you don't have those connections, if you don't have that foot in the door, it's so much harder. And so that that really started it off for us. And of course, that was even just a small slice of the problem, as I referenced earlier. But that was, I think, the real spark that got us thinking this was a really important thing to tackle. So one of the, obviously, as you know, far too well, like one of the amazing things about being in a startup is you pivot, you, uh, you, you know, the, the ideation changes, what the core thesis or philosophy may change, the, uh, you know, exterior environment changes, all, all that, that happens. So from the core mission of what, you know, the idea behind Handshake was to what it is today, how has that changed versus how has that remained very tight knit of what it originally was supposed to be? Yeah, so... The big change was really right between that moment that I talked about where we're like, wow, you know, we're at this remote school. How do we help other students at a remote schools get that foot in the door to when we really realized it was a much bigger problem than that. Right. And so that's when we really started to realize we were already coming from a really big position of privilege ourselves. And when you start to stack in gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, as I mentioned before, you know, being a first gen student in college, um, who, you know, who your parents know, there's so many things that really layer into that. And so that was kind of that moment where it ballooned from, hey, this is a cool, interesting project for us to focus on to this is actually a really huge societal problem because I think we were pretty naive even to start with that. So that that really is when it turned from project to this is like what we really want to spend all of our time doing. Um, since then, that has been the consistent mission for us. Um, now, the pace of growth and other things and what we originally thought kind of our pace would be and how fast things actually grew and all that changed a ton of different times. But that moment was really kind of what cemented the core mission, the core direction, the core way we wanted to approach this. Um, and it's been true to that ever since. Yeah, I love it. So, you know, one of my favorite one of my favorite things is, um, you know, it, once you kind of have a startup and you've survived a few years and people start to say, oh, it's no longer an idea, like you're actually running a business, then you get people who sort of start to bring ideas to you and they're like, I don't know where to start, right? And those are really fun conversations to have. You get to, you know, roll through ideas with them and introduce, like I've just gotten a real kick out of doing that for people even in my network. So for you, for somebody who approaches uh, you and they're like, hey, I've got this idea or I see this problem or this niche or whatever it is, kind of where you saw the origination behind Handshake, where do you encourage them to go? What do you, what kind of first step do you encourage them to take when I've got this idea or problem and I want to take the first step? How do, how do you handle sort of that being approached to you? Yeah, I think it's... It's like the easiest question of all time, right? <laughs> yeah, and it really depends so much on where they're at and what they're trying to do, right? The biggest thing I'd say that everyone needs to do consistently is be willing to ask stupid questions and ask them to a few different people. But I will also caveat that with at a certain point you need to just stop and have conviction and move forward with something, right? So two of the biggest problems I've seen people do is they are just trying to do everything themselves in isolation and they never they never kind of stop to ask other, question, other questions to people, learn those best practices, be willing to sound stupid. And then they just have to try to relearn everything or learn everything on their own and they don't make any progress. On the other hand, I've seen people where they start to get advice, they hear five different things from five different people and they just start to feel paralyzed and they just start asking for more and more and more advice and never make that leap. And so, you need to ask a lot of people, you need to be willing to look stupid, but then you also need to be willing to then 
operate with some level of conviction and take a stand, even if you're not hundred percent sure that's the right way to go. Do you feel like in your experience uh, of sort of wanting to launch Handshake, do you think most people that you had the idea, you know, to, you know, the first idea, the first problem, the first leap of faith, was it pretty well received and were you well supported in your journey? Or do you feel like you got the quote unquote, lot of haters, uh, you know, steering you away from doing it? Honestly, a lot of both. Um, I still remember one of the business and entrepreneurship um, professors or advisors told us our idea was a terrible idea. It would never be effective and we shouldn't waste our time on it. Right. And that was one of the first points of feedback that we got at the same time, the, the CTO and deputy CTO of Michigan tech, like would spend hours with us because they thought this was such a cool idea from things that they had seen and spent hours with us, teaching us how to work with the different it departments and other places at different campuses on how could we get handshake launched effectively. Uh, and so it was, there, there, it was a huge bifurcation and you would just get constant people saying awful idea, terrible idea will never work on one side and other people that get excited about it. And it really just is, I think people get it or they don't, especially in those early days. And um, you're going to get a ton of those people that are just haters and they're trying to come from a good place. They don't want you to waste their time. But if it was also 100% obvious, right, more people would be going after it and doing it too. It's so true. Like I, I feel like uh, very rarely did I ever have anybody who was like, that's you're like, you're dumb to even try it. It was more people who I feel like were not really kind of open-minded and ideas in general. So therefore kind of naysayers and more like, look, you know, you got a lot of good ideas, come up with a better one, but don't do that one. And it was not really like, you're the worst person in the world. It was more just like, you know, we're trying to save you some time and here's all the reasons why you shouldn't, but never, I don't know. I never really felt like there was that strong of like hate, 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 but I, 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 you're spot on. There's probably one or two that I can still remember exactly what they said. They were like, nope, that'll never work. And there's already 10 other people doing it or whatever it was. Right. Right. So you got a, you've got a, uh, you've got an idea. Now you've got something that you actually see as an opportunity. Now you actually see something that like, maybe there's a chance to monetize. Where did you kind of go from there? What was like, you know, obviously you guys have had tons of, you know, wild success and, and obviously, you know, recent funding round and a lot of really, really cool things, but kind of where, where was like the early on business success that you felt like you really got a nice break? So when we first got started, myself and my two other co-founders, we made a commitment to each other because we were like, okay, cool. Well, we need to put everything into this um, and we need to be at least committed for some amount of time. And so what we agreed to to each other was if we got five schools to launch Handshake in our for in within three years, if we didn't have five schools yet after three years, that's when we could kind of decide to throw in the towel, move on to something else. But we were going to commit at least to those three, those three years. we ended up getting five schools in our first year that wanted to launch Handshake. Um, and it just ended up growing kind of wildly from there. And so that was really kind of getting those five schools in the first few years was one of the, the biggest breaks. Um, I'll, I'll kind of go down a bit of a, a road with one of those two, um, which was, and actually I'll step back for a second. Part of the reason that we launched to schools is we partner with schools. They bring in their students and employers and they help really bring this entire network together to help these students really get great, um, great jobs. And so they're just this really amazing partner to have that helps build the network and make it all work really effectively. Um, but part of what really made that happen was we sat down and we picked the kind of the top um I don't remember if it was 50 or hundred career services um, at university directors uh, in the nation that we thought were doing really innovative stuff. And what we did was we 
did handwritten letters to every single one of them, printed a mug with their alma mater, um, packed that up in a box with like a trifold in it, uh, all about handshaking. We shipped those out to every single director. And that's what kind of moved us from cold calling schools all day and maybe getting someone to take pity on us because we were a student looking for advice um, to people actually starting to take calls with us and really consider using handshake and making that big switch. And so that's kind of where it started to say, okay, cool, this is something that can succeed. We can make this go. Uh, and it was probably one of the most stressful times was going from those zero schools to those first five. You know, it's, I'm glad you brought that up. One of the things I was going to ask is like, obviously, uh, when launching a new idea, problem, you know, solution to a problem, so you got to win in some way, because obviously, you're not going to be the most robust product, or, or maybe you were, but like, you may win on product, you may win on salesmanship, you may win on whatever it was. And one of the questions I'm going to ask is sort of how do you think you first won that you know, that, that those initial school is over. And so it sounds like it was kind of winning over on the customer support. Like let's, let's show that we're willing to do whatever it takes to win your business over and kind of win. Do you think that was kind of the key to those, you know, initial five school success? Well, I think that unlocked the door to them talking to us. That yeah, right on. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was more what really made them decide to switch and start to use us was really more around our approach to the product. And so a lot of the other platforms were really, it's kind of an interesting um, component of it, right? Because a lot of the other platforms were really geared towards the career service department, super customizable, super robust, like heavy enterprise tool. And what we said was, this just makes for, you end up with a really crafty, hard to understand experience for students. They don't want to use this. On the flip side too, LinkedIn is built for people with 10 years of experience. So that's a bad experience for students too. This is the first platform that's really built by people that understand the student experience because we've just gone through it, right? And it's built for them first. And you're going to have less customization as a career service center, but that's going to give a way better experience to your students. And so that was kind of the big differentiator and why they decided to take a bet on us when we were still so early and didn't actually match a lot of the functionality that these big enterprise systems had. Do you think you got, uh, did, did you have any folks that kind of looked at you and you're like, this is a great idea, but you guys are too young to see this through you like not, not the age of the company, but you, you guys as you guys as founders, co-founders. Uh, well, yes, both. Right. Because this, the, so as background, right, the, the platforms that these schools are using is essentially like the equivalent of like a sales force to a sales team, right? This is yeah. running their everyday function. It's managing these on-campus interviews, which are a big deal with your employers and students and so many other things. And so you are trusting like the revenue that your career center department brings in, the efficacy of an entire year's worth of campus recruiting and the outcomes that your school is going to be able to point to, to, yeah, a bunch of 20-somethings, right? Um, and so that was, that definitely people would, would balk at that a little bit. On the flip side, they would also see, hey, this is going to be something that really truly is built for students. So maybe we're willing to take that risk. But people really wanted to see it working and at other schools first that were like them. And so that was a big reason a lot of schools weren't willing to talk to us in those first couple of years because that's a huge switch for them. Yeah, right on. So you landed the first five schools in you know, what seemed like uh... – what seemed like the first first year, which is absolutely amazing. You know, congrats for obviously blowing out your blowing out your goals. You know, even even your first set of them. But what would you say? You know, once you kind of landed those first five, you're off to the races. Now it's like let's go do the work that we said we're going to do. What was kind of next phases after sort of the initial set of customers that were willing to take a risk in you? What was that like? 
Yeah, so our biggest priority, first and foremost, was to build up really good foundations with these university partners because they are so so core to the network. And so the first few years, really, were almost 100% focused on the university side of things and kind of minim the minimum viable work needed for the student and the employer sides. So it was really getting schools in different cohorts because, again, each school is like, well, who do you have like us that's used us before? How can we de-risk it? So really finding the innovators in each pocket of schools, bringing them on, making sure they had a really good experience, building like crazy, starting to actually hire a team beyond just the five or six of us that we were so far. Um, and so that was kind of really big milestone. One was really nailed that the university, the EDU side. Once we got that into a better spot, we were able to start to shift to focusing on really helping bring the student experience into a much better spot. And then as that got better, we started to get into a spot where we could build on employer side. And we drive a lot of our revenue from premium employer features as they think about how they can they recruit more effectively, more inclusively, more equitably, and at a wider scale than they otherwise would. And so that was kind of the third big phase was starting to really scale that out. And now kind of each year, it's a little bit of a balance between each of the three of those, but it moved kind of through those big three phases at first. Um, you, you mentioned this and this is going a little bit, a little bit back, but, uh, both with the, the initial five schools that you guys landed and then obviously, you know, how you guys have amassed so far, has it sort of taken a champion in the organization that you sold to that was really like, we need to, we need to implement this and see this through, or do you feel like it was pretty widely, ex like I asked some of this because in our industry with specifically HR and talent acquisition, a lot of times they act once another department or once, once another company has. So if you are trying to close your first manufacturing company, they sort of want to see success in another one. Same thing, you know, once you're in an organization, it takes one person sort of seeing it through. So in like the sales process, the early adoption process, all that, did you see that it was sort of a initial champion that took and ran with it? Or, you know, how, how did that process kind of work, kind of work for you? Yeah, it's so two things, right? That that piece of each one wants to see, you know, kind of someone else like them that's done it before is very huge, right? It would be, okay, cool. I know you're at these schools that are of this type, right? But have you worked with another elite liberal arts institution or another state school that's our scale or other different things like that, right? And so everyone always had those questions. And so to first, once you had a few schools like them, it was a lot easier to get widespread kind of excitement within the entire department, but it is a huge change for them, right? Some of these offices have... 30, 40, 50 staff members in them that all use, you know, their previous platform every single day. And so you're trying to convince a lot of folks that maybe have been going with the same workflows, the same approaches for 10 plus years to, to make a switch. Uh, it really still takes that champion that really kind of sees, okay, why is this worth it? Why is it worth the pain of switching because of the impact it's going to make for our students. And so that was absolutely critical. And we found them different ways. Sometimes it was through introductions and champions that were going out there and talking to their peers of other schools. Sometimes it was through conferences, sometimes getting even more creative beyond that too, but you definitely really needed that champion to help kind of bring that to the rest of the department. Yeah. I love that. Looking back on, uh, so how, how many years has handshake? How many years has it been? Oh goodness! Uh, it we graduated in 2014, uh, but we really started working on it probably in late 2020, uh, 2012. So seven to nine years, depending on how you count it. Yeah, I love that. S same sort of thing. Uh, looking back in the last seven to nine years, is there one or two things that you know you look at yourself and you say, "I we we really did this well," and then is there anything that you would look back and be like? man, we really botched that. I mean, of course, every entrepreneur probably bats 20% success or 30% success and that's all it takes. But like, is there anything kind of bold that you were like, man, we really nailed that. And man, I really wish we would have done something differently there. Yeah. Um, 
There's, there's so many things on both. Uh, I would say one of the things I continue to be the most proud of is, um, and, and it's not a part I thought of when we were first starting a business, right? It's an important thing, which is really thinking about the, the culture and the team you're building, right? When you're first getting started, everyone's just really heads down. It's what can you get? How many lines of code can you write? You know, can you get this feature out quickly uh, so you can show it to the customer the next day that you talked to the day before? But um, as you really start to grow, building a team that really feels like they understand what their purpose is and why they're here, that feels like they can kind of speak transparently on topics and really challenge those questions, um, that is really pushing for stuff that matters and speaking kind of with like conviction uh, towards those is willing to do that, I think are really important and things that I've been really proud to see in our team throughout. And I think there's tons of stuff we'll continue to grow on and continue to want to do. But uh, I think that's been something that's been uh, something I'm just really proud of that we've been able to do um, areas that I think we've, there's been so many things that have been absolute challenges and disasters at different times too, along the way. I'm trying to pick one that like sticks out the most. Um, I mean, I remember this is, this is just kind of a very specific story, but we at one point decided we were going to try to adapt the product we'd built for schools to be able to help, um, host hackathons, uh, which are these, um, for anyone that's listening that doesn't, uh, isn't familiar with those, basically a bunch of students will get together and do coding projects all through, you know, the night and into the next day. You have a lot of employers there that are hosting different, um, you know, prizes or interviews or um, just talking more around their APIs and things that they can do. Uh, and so there's, they, they were always really exciting for us as students to take part of, and we thought it'd be a good way to get more students on Handshake, more employers excited about it. And our product though was just not ready for that. And at one point it had such a massive glitch that it emailed every single student at this hackathon 500 different times with the same email and people started going around being like what the hell is this handshake thing um we're taking off our like jacket and being like don't look at us don't look at us um <laughs> we're trying to call our you know mail provider to get them to cancel out the other ones that are still queued that we can't stop anymore because they're out of our system uh, and so that was a huge disaster. And I think the students at that school still had a very negative association with us for, for many years to come. But luckily, after about four years, they all graduate and you got a new batch that has never heard And of I was about to say, students don't really read emails anyway, so you're fine. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but that was, that was one big disaster that I still, that still really sticks with me. And it all happened at like three in the morning, too. So it was extra chaotic. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so one, one thing on the, I, th I think a lot of folks would love to hear about is, you know, you guys, you obviously have a couple of co-founders with you. What skills to kind of each of you possess or how do you sort of intertwine working successfully with, obviously you guys have had, again, massive amounts of success, which has been awesome. And you guys have been doing it as, you know, as a team, obviously the start with you guys. And then obviously you guys are a lot ma more massive of an organization now, but sort of how have you guys worked well together? What have you learned? What kind of different skill sets do you guys have? Tell me a little bit more about how the, the co-founder, you know, relationships have worked. Yeah. I think one thing that was really critical from the get-go was we all knew each other ahead of starting Handshake. We all cared very personally each about the mission that we were trying to solve. Uh, and so we also knew that even when there were really, really tough times, we knew we had the same goals in mind. We knew we had each other's back. We knew we really trusted each other, even if we didn't agree about the approach. And that was critical. And I think without that, so many of the really hard times would have been even harder. Uh, and so that foundation was really critical and has has been true, that, that foundation has been true throughout the, our, our entire time at Handshake as well. Um, 
in terms of backgrounds and kind of how those all became complementary, I think we were pretty, pretty fortunate that we all had kind of very, we all came from computer science-esque backgrounds, but specifically Garrett, our CEO, has been, always been a really incredible visionary thinker, getting people excited about what we're going to do. How do you bring people in, painting that picture for people, thinking through what really being best in class means and how can we push ourselves and push our goals Scott is an incredible systems architect and thinker. And so he was really in there building. How do we actually make a system that's not going to just break down the instant we have, you know, thousands of students coming through it for the first time ever, you know, this coming fall, or how are we going to, you know, if we had a, we talked about a feature with a customer that day, Garrett and I would call up Scott and we'd be like, Hey, can you build this like for by tomorrow? And he would get in there and we would have something we could show that school the next day um, and could be really critical and showing like we can move fast with you and we can build some really amazing stuff. Um, and then for me, I kind of brought a little bit of both of those together. So early on, it was a lot of thinking through our product, how we're building that. And then I've moved through a lot of roles over time. So led our product team for a while, led the go-to-market team, so sales support and success for about three years, then later our people and talent team. Um, and so kind of that I've acted a little bit as like the glue that stitches those things together when we don't have something good to really tie those. Uh, and so it's worked out really well for us. And I think it's been a fantastic relationship. How do you think you've been able to scale that those successes and those skill sets beyond the three of you? So, you know, obviously for as big as you guys are, it's not just the three of you anymore. So how, how have you, you know, gone about sort of multiplying and, and adding to those skill sets and complementing it maybe where you lacked as well too? Yeah, so there's kind of a very um, definitive article that uh, First Round wrote called Give Away Your Legos um, and Other Commandments for Scaling Startups. And I think is a, is a, if anyone is going through a startup kind of scaling right now and going from that small part where you're owning everything uh, to now you've got teams and people and you're having to collaborate and coordinate and you've got other people doing work and you may not completely agree with how they're doing it, it's, it's the perfect article to do that. And I think it's so critical, right? Because you at the at the very beginning because you've got all the context you know the full vision you're bringing in these new folks that maybe don't know all of that yet they don't have the background they're going to be doing work that is potentially lower quality than what you'd want right and it's you, it's faster to do it yourself and it's faster to just get in there versus trying to teach someone else the thing and so you really have to make that active effort to do that and then i think what's been some of the most rewarding moments over time is once you do that and you give people the space to approach things in their own way and try something that you thought wouldn't work, you start to see really incredible results. And so I think it was really at first kind of that leap of faith of like, oh God, I'm really nervous, but like, I'll let you do it. And then once you start to see people building things so much better than anything else that you could have built or in a totally unique way you never would have thought of, that really is what starts to unlock that. And you start to get not just comfortable about it, but excited about bringing people in and seeing what they're doing and seeing what they're bringing. Um, and then the key part then at that point is just really making sure people understand the mission, understand the values, how we operate, right? That's kind of the way I view what the three of us need to do the most is really continue to instill those values and instill those kind of that that operating code and then let people work um, within that to really do their their, their best work. I love that. And I'm going to add that that uh, that link to the show notes and also read it myself because that's something I, I, I think is fantastic. I, uh, in my experience, uh, early on mistakes I've made is trying to re replicate myself because, of course, I'm so perfect and so good at everything. But I think, you know, you, you get you get so attached to this is this is the way I know how to do it. Right. And this is the way that I want, you know, and I think it's really, really good. And so when I bring people in to help, it's I'm expecting you to do not maybe as good, but close to as good as way exactly the way I do it. And then all of a sudden you pull the reins back and you let them kind of 
you know, have a lot of leash and, and, and kind of go do it their own way and come back and, you know, exceed the results or, you know, do it way better than you. All of a sudden it's the most eye-opening, coolest thing ever when somebody takes ownership. I, I, I just think that's an awesome thing. So I'll, I'll attach that article in the show notes. That's amazing. Totally agree. Yeah. I love that. So what's next for handshake? Obviously, uh, congratulations on the amazing funding fund, you know, fundraising round. You guys have just crushed it. It's been so fun to watch. So, so walk me through kind of what's, uh, what's next for you guys. What's kind of the big mission. Um, and obviously whatever you're comfortable with, you know, would love, would love, you know, I, I think the listeners would be fascinated to hear a little bit about how that last recent raise went and all that too. So we'd love to hear whatever you're comfortable sharing on that. Yeah. I'll maybe, um, I'll maybe kind of try to tie all of those together actually into kind of one, one kind of set of things. So 2020 obviously was an incredibly challenging year for everybody. Um, and for us, it, it had a few interesting kind of implications, right? So um, most of our revenue comes from employers recruiting early talent. Uh, at the beginning of 2020, a lot of companies started to shut down their recruiting and their hiring. Uh, and that included folks that were going and trying to find interns and everything else. And so at first we started to really see a lot of employers try to kind of pull back. They were pulling out of deals that were about to close. They were asking if they could renew at lower rates. Um, and what our team really started to do and focus on was given that this fall was not going to be in-person career fairs anymore, it was going to be a big paradigm shift, right? Employers, m most of where the budget and time and energy of on-campus routing grows to is, it goes to is these really in-person sort of interactions, right? At Michigan Tech, uh, the one company would show up on campus and drive their cars all over campus uh, and just make a big splash, right? And like hope that that got the, the students to be excited about them and think about them and consider getting jobs with them, right? Uh, or you're hosting a pizza party in the student union building um, and so many other different things. And those just really don't scale and they're not really effective and it's not actually targeted and thoughtful. Uh, and we saw a really good opportunity to be able to help kind of people and employers think about how they could do recruiting in a more effective way virtually, which is a big part of what we want them to do, right? Re reach more schools than you just are visiting in person. Find those students that are the, the undiscovered talent in these different places. Um, and since fall wasn't going to be in person, employers were forced to do that. And so our team really pivoted on everything they were going to build for 2020. Um, we dropped that and started just focusing on building tools to help with virtual interviews, virtual career fairs, and trying to approach those in a way where we're not just taking the in-person thing and making it happen kind of in a kind of veneer of a digitized version, um, but really rethink some of those dynamics. And um, it went really well. And for employers, they started picking back up. We actually started closing more deals. Uh, it really shifted a lot of the behaviors that we thought was going to take another two or three years of change um, in the recruiting space to happen in kind of a matter of months, honestly. Uh, and it led to some much more equitable outcomes. And I can talk about those too, if we want to get into that as well too, for students. Um, and that's what then ended up leading to our Series E fundraising round. We weren't uh, we weren't actually actively fundraising. Our investors saw a lot of the growth and what was happening and the change that was happening in the space too, and how the team was able to really operate and said, "Hey, we'd love to give you some more money on this." Same, you know, really clean terms, and just made it really easy for us to say yes to that. Uh, and then that let us really start to invest that this year into really scaling out our engineering team, our sales team, and other teams to really um, start to use this this momentum that's happening in recruiting and this change to being smarter about how we do it uh, and really build things to help continue to support that and continue to accelerate that. And so um, really, as we kind of look at the future with that, right, it's 
really can um, continue to help people be really smart about reaching the right talent, be really thoughtful about how they're achieving those equitable outcomes, thinking about what are the true underlying skill sets, right? Not just the GPA or major, which can be really flawed um, metrics that help you find the really great talent that's out there. Uh, and so there's a lot of work around that kind of over the next few years for us. I love that. And uh, congratulations again for closing the round, but even further than that, to have a uh, uh, a scenario where you could walk away and you say it was hard to say no. And obviously it was a very easy yes to investors. You hear a lot of startups that don't have that experience. So that's just absolutely amazing. And, and, you know, obviously thrilled for you. I'd love to hear you kind of, you kind of uh, briefly mentioned the more equitable outcomes that came from um, sort of the virtual recruiting, obviously selfishly, I'm fascinated by your response in that because of our industry as well, but I'd, I'd love just to hear kind of what, what, what changed, what happened, you know, what you guys started to notice. That's fantastic. Yeah, so one of the ones that really sticks with me the most that I think about so often is um, there's so many ways that socioeconomic status can impact people as they're going through um, an interviewing process. And so um, for me, when I was in college, what the career fair was, was it was a full day event. It was up at the um, gymnasium, which was the top of the hill. And so if you wanted to do it, you took you took off classes. If you had any work, you had to take off work too. You show up to this giant gymnasium. You maybe could look ahead of time and see what companies were going to be there. Uh, but then you come in and it's just this jam-packed, sweaty gymnasium. You're in a suit. I borrowed my dad's suit the first year, right? And so it didn't fit exactly right. I'm uncomfortable. I'm sweating. There's so many people in this room. You get in line and there's 30 other students in front of you. The entire time you're kind of like practicing your like three sentence pitch where you're trying to capture everything about who you are into just a couple sentences. And then you thrust your resume at them uh, and hope that they like you enough to set up an interview later. And it's just this high intensity. You aren't prepared. You're not in a good setting. You're not going to show yourself off the best. And it's full of all these snap judgments too, right? Someone's looking at you, how you're standing. And so many early career recruiters that I've talked to will often reference, so like, oh yeah, you just know in the first 30 seconds if they're a fit or not, which to me just screams bias, 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 right? Um, if you really feel like you've actually figured out if someone's a fit in that short amount of time. Um, and what's really interesting about virtual interviews is we decided to switch from kind of this idea of go stand in a big queue, hope you can do it. Uh, and I'll, I'll backtrack actually for a second. Part of the problem too is because you don't know what these lines are going to be like and what employers are going to be there. You can't really plan your day for it, right? You have to take multiple hours off to really make it an effective use of your time. Uh, instead, what we set it up was you come in, you can research some of the employers that have it. They've got open slots, 15 minute slots that you can grab at any time that works for your schedule, research some companies, find some ones you're interested in, find a slot that works for you book that slot. Um, if you've got work during that day, you just take off the half hour, you know, 45 minutes around it. You prep, you know exactly who you're going to be talking to, exactly the company, you know your details, you can go somewhere that you're comfortable. Um, and then you go through and you have that conversation. It's more in depth than that two minute um, kind of try to get everything across. You can actually spend that time learning more about them and sharing more about yourself. Uh, and we really saw that it made some, some big difference. I don't have the numbers up in front of me right now, but we saw it show up in the numbers in terms of the numbers of um, for instance, black students that felt comfortable as they were going into their interviews and the actual outcomes that came out of those. Uh, we released a report not too long ago about it. Now I, I can send you a link to it later if people are really interested in digging into it. But um, there's so many other things like that too that I think just make such a difference um, and are just not done optimally today with the way in-person things work with interviewing and assessing and getting connected to the right people and everything else. It's uh, I'd love to see the report. And, and we, we've seen sort of a similar... Um, idea on that with video interviews in the sense of once a candidate completes a video interview, it's something that you can watch, rewatch and share with other people. So it's not just 
the bias of the individual person on a one time watching it, or, you know, as you alluded to the high intense, like handshake, maybe somebody was a little bit nervous, but if you talk to them for five, 10 minutes, they may have loosened up or felt more comfortable and you got to better understand them. So the ability to be able to sort of rewatch or watch again or, or send it to more people drastically has an impact on, on sort of those equitable outcomes, which I think is fascinating. Obviously it sounds like you guys, you guys saw that as well too. So no, I, I, I love that. And I love, you know, quite like, are you seeing now that we're sort of coming out of quote unquote, the pandemic, do you see that things are going to go back to sort of the career fair approach that sort of that high intense? Or do you think once people realize that they actually may have gotten better uh, results from some a lot of the virtual efforts that then led to in-person meetups. What you know? What what are you seeing? This kind of trends. Yeah. So what we're hearing across the board from employers is, um, while most plan to bring back some level of in-person again as soon as they can, as soon as they feel safe and comfortable, universally they want to they want to keep a big portion of doing virtual recruiting, right? Whether that's just to reach more schools than they can normally visit as because they want to be more thoughtful about it, even with the school to augment the things that they're doing in person. Everyone is planning on doing way more virtual recruiting than they were in the past. They might still come to a couple select schools, maybe the one that, you know, in right in their backyard or the alma mater of the team lead or other things like that. But they're really thinking beyond that and not just saying, how can I be really selective in where I'm going? And they've seen the impact of that. So that's been what's been so exciting is, is so many, we thought that again, that was going to take three years or so of, of recruiters and teams seeing that to work. And uh, people just saw how effective that was through, um, through COVID. I love it. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about a uh, sort of, you know, your, your, your journey and kind of next phases as well. You know, if you, if you had to kind of state where you're at in, in, you know, your career, your life, uh, just kind of the impact that you guys have had, if you had sort of a choice, um, to sort of leave a, a lasting impact or influence on people in the world, uh, what would you want that to be? If I had a choice on something that I could leave as a lasting impact on people of the world. Was that the, that the yeah. Yeah. So basically like if, if you could, if you could basically map out the exact impact or the influence that you left in the world and you got to sort of decide and dictate what that was, what would you, if you had a choice, what would you want that to be? That is such a big question. I know very simple. We got You know, we got to get the scotch in front of us sort of thing. (laughs) Right. Um, I would say, I mean, I really think there are a lot of cycles of inequality that just that just prevent so many people from achieving their their potential, right? And there's so much good that could happen in the world if people were given the right access to those. And so this is kind of a broad answer, right? But I really want to try to impact as many of those as I can. And so with Handshake, right, it's really helping with that first job out of college. There's um, I'm going to I'm going to misquote the stats on this, but uh, it's something like around I'm not even going to try it because I'll say the stats wrong. But basically, if you don't get a job coming out of college that requires a degree, something around three quarters to 90 percent of people that didn't end up in a job that required their degree still are underemployed in a job that doesn't require that, that degree 10 years after college. That first job that you get into sets so much of a path for the rest of your career. And so that's one of the ones we're really trying to tackle with Handshake. Um, and not just for college, right? Boot camps, community college, trade programs, other paths that students are going through too. That's such a critical time period. Um, another one that's really closely related to that, I work with a, 
uh, a nonprofit organization called iMentor that really helps students. They pair mentors with students um, and really help them figure out what is your path to college? How do you go through that? How do you decide what you want to do? How do you get access to a lot of those resources, right? Let's say you're a first-gen student in college. You might not know how to even think about approaching FAFSA, which is a financial aid um, process, right, and system, and so many other things that can be overwhelming. And so they do a lot of really great work at helping, especially connecting students from um, lower income areas, um, generally a lot of Black and Latinx students um, into getting those paths into college. Because again, that's another big one where um, so many students that I've met and talked through through that, right, they're the first student in their family um, to not just have taken kind of a minimum wage job out of college. And that can do be so huge for helping pull a family out of poverty, for instance. Um, and so there's, there's, there's so many of those two at different points in life. But I think finding those areas where you just have systems or um, or cycles that keep people from being able to really achieve their potential is a huge area I want to make an impact on. I love that. And my favorite question on the planet, kind of the, the last one, is uh, what ultimately would you say gets you out of bed in the morning? Honestly, it's the same thing as that as that last question, right? Yes, yeah. I have benefited so much from some from so many systems that have helped pushed me up, let alone not pulled me down, right? And so. Anytime I get to hear a story, um, whether it is through that work with iMentor, whether it is through stuff at Handshake, whether it's something else in some area where someone has been able to benefit from something, right? Uh, those are just so rewarding and so exciting. And so um, that's kind of what really keeps me going and what makes me want to get out of bed every morning and really try to tackle different things is a lot of those stories that you get to hear where someone was able to take that next step forward or was inspired to do that or got that right piece of information. Um, and if I can help do any of that, that, that is an incredibly exciting um, day, week, month, whatever amount of time it takes. I love it. I love it. I love it. So Ben, is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? Ooh, words of wisdom. I don't know if I have anything pithy I could add, but the one thing I would just mention again, that I think has been so helpful for me, right, is just always be willing to, again, ask those stupid questions. Uh, and then and then give that back, right? I've benefited from so many people being willing to spend time on my stupid questions. If you've benefited from that with other people too, take the time to go be a mentor to someone else, right? Even if you don't feel like you can or you don't have anything to give, there is so much that you can. So um, go out, take that step and try to help give that advice to other people too. Because I think we've we've all probably benefited in one way or another from from the advice of others and people love taking the time for us. I love it. I love it. I love it. Ben, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. This was fantastic. And I uh, just want to say a huge thank you. Awesome. Thank you too, Matt. This is a lot of fun. You just listened to an amazing episode on the Matt Baxter Show. It had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the guests that I have and the stories that we get to tell and the smack talking we get to have. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to, feel free to su subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Check us out at themattbaxtershow.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matt C. Baxter, Twitter, or Facebook as well too. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, whether it's through an email on the website or whether it's through any of the social platforms. I do my best to get back to people as soon as I can. But thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy. Feel free to send feedback in any way. And don't be afraid to share the Matt Baxter Show. We're very excited to have you as a listener and hope you continue to listen as well. Thanks a ton. Bye-bye. <music>